This is an AMI podcast. I'm Chuita Gupta and this is The Pulse. Music brings joy to people of all abilities. Unfortunately, many live music venues remain inaccessible to people with disabilities. At live music events, the barriers could range from physical to attitudinal. More recently, however, artists themselves have embraced a more relaxed, participatory, and interdisciplinary approach to live performance. This creates opportunities to break down barriers to access for people with disabilities. Ensuring barrier-free live music venues like concerts or music festivals not only benefits patrons but also performers and workers with disabilities. Today, we discuss making live music accessible. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joitha Gupta. I'm the host of the program and I hope... Wherever you are, however you are joining us, you're doing well at this time of COVID-19 and taking care of yourselves and your families and friends while practicing safe social and physical distancing. That's what we're doing here at AMI-audio. All of us are working from home and bringing you this show remotely. And of course, if you wanted to keep up with the latest news and our segments uh, that deal with COVID-19, you can visit the webpage at ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. So for those of you who've uh, heard me on this program and elsewhere on the channel, you know I'm a huge, huge live music fan. And I love to go to concerts. I love to take in plays. I love to do anything and everything that involves being part of a live audience. It's so magical. But as a person with a visual impairment, there have been instances where I felt that the performance or the venue wasn't as accessible as it could be. My guest today is Cassie Wilson, the founder of Half Access, a non-profit organization dedicated to making live music more accessible to people with disabilities. Cassie joins us now on the line from Portland, Oregon. Cassie, welcome to The Pulse. It's so nice to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about all this today. Yeah, great minds think alike. So I've come clean. I am an avid concert goer. I love being part of a live audience. Tell me a little bit about uh, where your interest in concerts and live music comes from and uh, what your experience has been in attending some of these events. Absolutely. Um, about four or five years ago now, I kind of discovered Portland's local music scene, and I was discovering all of these artists who I loved so much that I just wanted to love and support them as much as any bigger artist uh, that I loved. And so I started actively going to shows and getting more involved in the music scene. And then um, from there, I started going to more shows in general, and um I was finding that at a lot of general admission venues, there wasn't really any like accessible um, viewing areas or like somewhere to be safe during the show um, where I could still have an equal experience but not have to subject myself to being in the crowd where it's unsafe for me and unsafe for other people. And so 
I'd started speaking up, like asking venues, hey, like, is there somewhere that I can be? Because I always just kind of put myself in the front row thinking that was the only way that I would have an equal experience. But uh, overall, venues were pretty much like, no, we don't really have anything. And so uh, that was a pretty big wake up call for me because I never really even thought to advocate for myself uh, in those spaces until a few years into going to shows. So does access equal safety? Does access equal having the same experience? When you think about access specifically in this context, which is such a, it's a, it's actually quite a broad concept. When we talk about live music venues, it can encompass a lot. What exactly does access mean? For me, um, so you're right. Access can mean uh, a lot of things and especially because, uh, People with different types of disabilities have different needs. And so for me, it's just making sure that everyone's needs are being able to see or both or, you know, things like that, where it's like you're safe and able to experience the show in a way that works for you and that is basically pretty much equal with what everyone else is experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so eventually it, this whole thing comes to you as a bit of a wake up call. You decide you want to start speaking up and out of that motivation comes half access. So tell us about half access. What is it and how long have you been in operation? Yeah, so I, uh, in the beginning of 2017, I started half access as a more productive outlet for speaking up and making change surrounding accessibility in live music. And um, the core of what we do right now is our website has a database of venue accessibility information. Um, Obviously, a lot of it, because we're based in the U.S., is from the U.S., but it expands uh, into Canada and even into Europe and um, other places. So, um That is to make it so that way before you even buy a ticket to a show, the goal is that you can come to our website and look up the venue that you're going to and be able to find any and all the info you would want to know before going to a show. So that way you don't have to necessarily end up contacting and waiting around for the venue to reply only to give you details that might not be helpful or, you know, if the venue never replies, then just having to guess and hope that they're accessible. Um, something I also like to emphasize is that our database encompasses all venues because it's not our place to decide whether or not something is accessible to someone since everyone's needs are different. See, you've anticipated my next question. Because accessibility can be so different for different people, What are your criteria to decide if something will be put on as having accessible features? And uh, how do you gather all of that information? Is it crowdsourced? Do you reach out to the venues? What's your preferred method to gauge some of that information? So a lot of it is crowdsourced, and we have this big form on our website that goes through anything from parking to... um, and transportation in the area to if people with disabilities can skip the line to get into shows. Um, and then like stuff about like if the restrooms are accessible and um, even like whether or not the restrooms are like single, like like a single like family restroom type of thing, or if it has stalls. 
um, because someone brought that up as being important to know before going. And um, and we're planning on to expand even further to stuff that uh, when crowdsourcing, people might not know offhand. And so with that, um, we'll eventually be reaching out directly to all the venues that are already in our database and mm-hmm. more venues to get an even more comprehensive list of things. Um, but some of the other ways that, aside from crowdsourcing, that we've uh, gained this information is through working with artists who are on tour. Um, there's a couple artists like Law Dispute and Gouge Away uh, and The Wonder Years um, who have uh, worked with their booking agents to reach out to the venues they're playing to make sure that they're in our database uh, before they even leave for tour. So that's been a huge Mm -hmm. way that we've gotten a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And we'll be talking a little bit about artists in just a few minutes, but you, you clearly run an, um, the, the nonprofit is very collaborative in nature. So how are you starting that relationship with venues and having a conversation with them that's non-punitive, that's overall constructive about making the physical space and their performances accessible? So it's kind of interesting because I know that every venue's reaction to accessibility is different because some, well, and actually a lot of them just aren't aware that they have like lack of accessibility if they do um, because either disabled people aren't going to their venues so they don't think about it because they're inaccessible and so people can't access them or um, they just haven't thought of it in general. Nobody's brought it up to them. And so that's like what we like to assume at first is just kind of coming at things from an educational standpoint and just being like, hey, did you know this is like this? Because, you know, there's a whole community of people that would love to access your space and be part of this community. And um, that's something that's really important to us is that we just want venues to be the best that they can be. And we want to just expand the community they've created and make sure everyone can access it. And so I think coming at it from like that communal approach and just like a shared love of music, I think is a pretty easy way to connect with anyone. I'm speaking to Cassie Wilson, who is the founder of Half Access. We're discussing making live music performances and events accessible. You know, Cassie, when it comes to physical venues and making those spaces accessible, I hate to say it, but the conversations can get pretty toxic. It's not unusual to hear, but this is a heritage building. It's uh, hundreds of years old. We can't retrofit it to put in a ramp. I'm sure you've heard things like that as well. What is your typical response? The historic building thing has always been hard for me because I'm just like, can't we keep the history, but, you know, not keep the ableism from the past, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, That one's hard to get past. And it also depends the city because even if a a historic building is willing to make those changes, I know here in Portland, like some of them also, if they put in like an elevator or something, then they also have to do millions of dollars of seismic upgrades uh, because the building was built so long ago that it wasn't, like, earthquake-proof. And mm-hmm. so um, so that's, like, one of those other things. It's just, like, so whenever a venue is in one of those positions where it could be a really long road to full accessibility, it's, like, 
I encourage venues to look at what they can do within their current means. I think that's a great starting place for any venue. Right. Now, I wanted to return to the point about artists that you brought up a few minutes ago, just as we prepare to go for a break here. You mentioned that artists can really tip you off as to whether a venue might be accessible, and that's one of the ways in which they've managed to contribute to the database. What are some other ways in which artists can be allies? Can they actually put some pressure on venues and try to get them to implement accessibility if that's not already in place? You know, I'm not sure on like a like large scale long term level, but they definitely can like on a show by show basis. If mm-hmm. somebody's going to a venue that's usually bad about like giving them a space to uh, watch the show or something like that. I know I've experienced where the venue hasn't been helpful to me at all to the point where after going there a few times, I would just reach out to the artist I'm going to see instead and then they would make sure that I had somewhere that I could be safe to experience the show. Um, mm-hmm. So I think artists can definitely have a lot more power because, I mean, without artists, there wouldn't really be venues. Mm-hmm. And they have all of the social capital, right? I mean, all of this cachet, the more it's sort of bra- the, the bigger the brand is, the more uh, the, the, the more people they attract to the venue, the more, I guess, cachet they bring in the more likely it is that someone can say, you know, I'm a big name. I won't play at your venue if it's not accessible, right? Absolutely. Yep. Cassie, with the pandemic, I think a lot of us, myself included, haven't really considered what this has meant for artists and performers because there are no in-person gatherings allowed. Ergo, that, you know, concerts are off the table. What has the pandemic meant for the livelihoods of these artists? I also know that a number of streaming services are, you know, are, are saying things like, you know, uh, services like Bandcamp are saying, if you buy a record today, we'll donate the entirety of the proceeds to the artist in question. What, what, what are things looking like right now during the pandemic for artists? It's definitely a scary time for artists. Um, I know a lot of artists I follow have been getting creative, uh, especially with, you know, releasing new merch, like especially things like coloring books or puzzles, uh, since they know a lot of people are bored at home. Um, They're trying to come up with anything that they can because touring is such a big part of their livelihoods that, you know, that's a big source of their income just totally gone and, Mm -hmm. um, And then the other thing, too, that I've seen more of is uh, when artists do live streams, they'll have, like, you know, information where people can just directly basically kind of tip them for the virtual performance they're putting on. And I think a lot of fans, too, know that artists are struggling, and, um, and so fans are more likely to do what they can to help support artists to get them through this time. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of these virtual performances, I can't help but wonder, now forgive me for being cynical, but I can't help but wonder if, you know, someone can actually hope to remain financially afloat at this time, being an artist performing virtually. Um, do you feel like it's actually going to allow someone to pay their bills? Not necessarily just mm-hmm. that. I think it's just kind of keeping that connection with fans and just staying active online in general since that's the main place everyone's connecting now. But mm-hmm. it's hard to say what else artists are having to do. I'm sure um, a lot of, I know a lot of especially smaller artists who are like in college and stuff had to move home anyway. Yeah. Um, 
People are really struggling right now. I know. Now, in terms of these virtual performances, in a way, it's an opportunity, I suppose, for people with disabilities because a lot of these platforms can be more accessible, quasi-accessible, whatever you like. Do you feel that virtual performances might actually help the overall mission of what you're trying to achieve with uh, Half Access? I think they can definitely play a part. It's something I'm still obviously learning a lot about because um, it is such a newer thing on this scale. Uh, We actually hosted uh, something called Access Live last year, which was basically um, an online festival um, like things that are happening now. And, you know, it's something that we're still trying to figure out because there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot to think about because Mm -hmm. I always wonder, like, are these platforms, you know, working for everyone? Because I don't know, like as somebody with only mobility related disabilities, I don't know that experience. And so, um, so that's something I've been thinking about a lot, but I think in general, like on a large scale basis, I think that, um, I think that live streams could make a big difference because now that everybody's used to doing them, I think that it's something that could almost be done for any and every like in-person show that happens Mm -hmm. too. Because if somebody is like homebound or something like that, and especially once things start going back to somewhat normal, if shows start returning before, you know, certain people feel like it's safe, like I don't know if I'd be ready to return to shows at the same time as everyone else after all of this. And so it's like, I feel like it'd be awesome if live streams kept happening in any and every capacity to include uh, as many people as possible, whatever that may end up looking like. Mm -hmm. Let me flip the script a little bit because it's so far we've talked about people with disabilities as though they were only patrons of the arts. And that's an important part of the conversation. But in fairness, people with disabilities are performers. People with disabilities work within the music sector in many capacities, often, you know, things like sound engineering or audio technician. Do you feel that some of this conversation that we're having about working from home virtually, making things more accessible and barrier-free, that this could also eliminate some of those barriers to employment for people with disabilities within the sector? I really, really hope so, and I think that it does because, like mainstream, uh, sorry, because live streaming has uh, become like pretty mainstream now. I think like people would be more likely to be like, "Oh, hey, somebody's playing a virtual show. Let me attend." And so, because if because um, if there are disabled musicians who can't necessarily get out to uh, physical venues uh, in the future, then I think that this creates a great option for them. And I think just in general, the way everything has so easily converted to suddenly being more accessible, I think Mm -hmm. hopefully will translate once um, some semblance of normal life returns. That's something I've been thinking about a lot during all of this is it's like, as soon as everyone couldn't access um, things that they need or enjoy, then suddenly they were made accessible. And I'm like, hey, can we take that mantra and apply it uh, to, you know, accessibility advocacy work after all of this is over? Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to Cassie Wilson, the founder of Half Access, about making live music performances accessible to people with disabilities. Cassie, just in keeping with what you just said about 
making things accessible for everybody and embracing that spirit of universality. Do you feel that artists are, at least that's been my observation, that do you feel that artists are in general moving towards performance styles that are a little more relaxed? They want to see more participation, especially in smaller venues. Do you feel that that cultural shift is actually going to help you open a conversation up about making these venues and performances more accessible? I hope so. You know, I think it's a lot easier to connect with artists nowadays, um, especially at smaller venues. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of them are also uh, like, like I know that um, advocacy within music has always been a big thing, but I feel like um, there's kind of like a new wave of it coming, uh, which is really nice uh, with a lot of like newer artists now. And so I think that it's a lot easier to connect with artists on stuff like this, and especially on an issue that directly impacts their fans and um, and is directly related to the spaces they're playing. And I think it's important for artists to also know like what the spaces they're playing are like, uh, even if it doesn't affect them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of the things that I've heard quite fiercely debated in the last little while is about the free admission for the attendant. I've had people with disabilities say, we don't want the charity from venues. We can, we have jobs and we can pay. And we've had other people say that we really do need access to an attendant to be able to, attend, to, to, to be able to experience this particular event and having that free ticket takes away a financial barrier. So accessibility isn't just physical or attitudinal. It's also financial. How do you feel about the debate? I think it's interesting, and I've seen it in a few different ways, and I've felt it in a few different ways, too. I think sometimes I know and I can feel that I'm having just as great of an experience as anyone else there. And in cases like that, I'm like, okay, great. Like, I'm glad that I, you know, paid this price. It was totally worth it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, sometimes, especially if I'm buying like tickets to an arena show, um, the way that accessible seating is placed can be different, obviously, compared to the regular stadium seating around it. And sometimes, even though the accessible seating is between two sections vertically, uh, it in my opinion, should have the price of the section above it, but instead it'll have the price of the closer section below it and be like, you know, $50 uh, more expensive or something like Mm -hmm. that. And I think that, you know, a big place where I see room for improvement in pricing uh, is definitely in the way that arena uh, accessible tickets are priced. And then the other place that I see it is like at inaccessible venues, I feel like I shouldn't have to pay because at that point I'm already going through so much just to be there and try to experience the show that it's like I'm I shouldn't be paying for an unequal experience. It just doesn't feel like it makes sense to me. We're almost at the end of our time together and I want to leave it on a positive note, Cassie. Why is music so important to you? Why is it important for people with disabilities and why is it important for society? I think music, more than just about anything, connects everybody. And so in that regard, everyone should be able to experience it together. And I think especially after the pandemic, you know, hopefully slows down uh, at some point in the future, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'll be more important than ever to be together. And I think music is that thing that when it comes back, it will be the thing that brings us together. And I think that everyone deserves to be part of that. Cassie, it's been wonderful speaking to you. Thanks a lot for being on the program. I invite you to take a bow, as it were. (laughs) Thank you. That was Cassie Wilson, the founder of Half Access, a nonprofit organization that works to create accessible and inclusive live music venues for people with disabilities. If you missed any of our conversation today, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Just before I head out for today, I wanted to talk about how important music is not only for artists and performers and for the audiences who go to watch and listen to them, but for society as a whole. Music brings us together. It is the glue that holds us together when we are in times of uncertainty like the pandemic, when we have a moment or an occasion in life when we're happy and we want to celebrate. Music provides, quite literally, often a soundtrack to the important happenings in our lives. So why shouldn't we all collectively work to make the experience as inclusive as possible for people of all abilities? Everybody, irrespective of our role, needs to lean in and make this happen. I'd like to thank Cassie Wilson for being my guest on the program. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanroll. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio with Paula Den- with special thanks to Paula Deneen, technical supervisor. Most of all, thank you for listening to the program. I hope you'll give us your feedback however you like. You can find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. Thanks a lot for listening. This has been The Pulse on AMI-audio. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.